almighty and everlasting God, you govern all things both in heaven and on earth. Mercifully hear the supplications of your people and in our time grant us your peace through Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit our God forever and ever. Amen. Thanks, Priya. Oh, if you want to go ahead and grab a seat. Well, good morning. Welcome to Roswell Community Church. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors. Whether you're joining us here in the building or online live, it is great to be able to be with you this morning. Um, do you want relief? more than you want holiness? Do you want relief more than you want holiness? That's, that's the question that kind of echoed for me and to me as I spent a week at the School of Spiritual Direction with uh, Dr. Larry Crabb. That was a talk that was kind of based around this whole idea that if we're gonna actually wrestle with our Christianity, with the life of Jesus, in us, we're going to have to wrestle with what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 6, verses 33, which is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. We were wrestling with that reality. Uh, uh, C.S. Lewis famously put it this way He said, If you put first things first, well, we get second things thrown in, but if you put second things first, we lose both first and second things. Wrestling with that idea of what does it mean for the life of Christ to be central in us? One of the questions that Dr. Grab asked is how do you recognize an unrecognized demanding spirit? A demanding spirit that's asking for second things. How, how do we come to see that Though we appear to be trusting God and with our prayers we're trusting him, but in reality there's this clenched fist underneath that's demanding. And it's hidden underneath even godliness. Maybe it even looks like godliness. What's a demanding spirit? Well, demanding spirit can be anything from like, hey, I want to be rich. I want to have security. I want to have safety. I, I want to have my life go better. I want to be able to have my kids have a good experience at school. So it's kind of like the surface things that can be a demanding spirit. But, but deep down, all the way underneath, a demanding spirit fundamentally is saying, I ha will not, I refuse to experience, to be drawn back into the pain, suffering, fear, uncertainty that I experienced in my life at some point or that I imagine would experience. I refuse. I will not. Now, of course, I'll never experience that pain again. Now, of course, that's a legitimate desire. No one who say, hey, I'd really like to go experience pain. Well, those people have issues, right? They're called masochists. And we're not saying that that's the case. But the desire, the demand to have those second things be first things, it's where it's broken. And that's what we'd call idolatry. Well, nowhere does God show us more clearly what it looks like for an unrecognizable, demanding spirit to be hidden and yet to start to emerge than in the mystery of the book of Job. I'm going to draw heavily on, on the Dr. Larry Crabb's sermon. It impacted me really vividly. 
I, I remember, it's one of the, you know, those times where you have a sermon that like, you just remember it years later, you quote it to people, you, you talk about it. It's one of those sermons for me. And so my, my prayer, my hope is that some of what I bring up today will have the kind of impact on you that it had on me, the kind of stirring and unsettling and remaking and, and deepening, both challenging and encouraging. And by the way, after we have this sermon, we're going to talk about suffering, we're going to talk about pain and the problem of pain. We're also going to have a conversation on Tuesday night. Tuesday night, we're going to have a, a conversation with a few folks about the problem of pain on our That Stuff in the Bible thing that we do. So this Tuesday, there's the slide. This Tuesday at 8 p.m., we're going to have like a dialogue about that and give you an invitation to come and ask some of the questions you've wrestled with. Maybe share some of the ways in which you've wrestled with those with the panel that we'll have involved. So make sure you register for that. That's kind of like step two. Step one this morning is just moving into the reality of the book of Job. And there is no book in the Bible like the book of Job. So this morning we're going to do the real easy thing, and that is we're going to work through the entire book of Job in one sermon. Cool? So here we go. Job chapter 1, verse 1. We should start there, right? Here we go. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Everything's going good for Job. He's just fine. He doesn't need any surgery. It looks like everything's going great. Verse 3, he possessed, I'm just going okay, he's going great. He possessed 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camel and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys. I don't know why it's just the female donkeys that get counted, but 500 female donkeys and very many servants so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one of house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters, and they would eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. This is the kind of man he is. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt sacrifices according to number of each one of them. For Job said, it may be, I don't know, maybe that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And that was so appalling to him. That he's like, I, I must intervene even for them. Thus Job did continually. What a great dude. The book could end right here. Do likewise. Amen. Instead, we're taken behind the scenes. We're taken into the heavenlies to be able to see something that's rarely revealed in the scriptures. Conversation between God it's angels and Satan. Find this in verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came along with them. Lots of questions that goes with this. That's not the point here. And by the way, I just want to point out, God is the one, so as you read, God is the one who's going to initiate the circumstance that will lead to all of Job's suffering, okay? It's just right here. God's the one who's going to initiate it. It says, and the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And God ends up answering that statement of Satan's by, by seeming to kind of enter what Satan is doing when he's going to and fro and up and down on the earth. Is there anyone, Satan is looking around, that would pursue God regardless of whether he's blessed in his life? In other words, is there anyone who wants God for God, period? Not for what he does or what he can do for them, because Satan's convinced that there is no such person. That's not possible. 
No one would want God for just what God is versus what he can do. So in Satan's disbelief, he projects it on God and God says, how about Job? And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth? Can we just pause for a second there? Imagine if, some, if God, God Almighty who knows all things was saying that about you. Like Job is the man. Like he may be more the man than any of the other man other than Jesus that we've seen in all the scriptures and that we will see in all the scriptures. Job is blameless before the Lord. Blameless, an upright man who feared God and turned away from evil. And Satan says, yeah, but there's a reason for that. Satan answered the Lord and said, does, God, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hand. How dare you? His possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. When you take away the blessing, God, it will become clear that Job only wanted your things. He only wanted your blessings. The idea of just relating to you, of, of, of being in union and communion with you, of, of just the idea of enjoying you and, and delighting in the experience of you would, will mean nothing to him. People are in to God for themselves, and I will show you if you let me. And God says, okay. That's one of those inscrutable things, right? One of those, those unsearchable things about God, the mystery of God. He says, okay. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. What's happening in the book of Job that's being set up by this first chapter is that God's saying, Let's take a deep look into the heart of a human being. Because God wants to reach the heart, right? That's what he's after. He's after your heart. He's after my heart. He wants, he wants our whole being. He wants to reach all the way to the heart of the question, why are you doing this Christian thing? Is it because if you do right and if you pray right and if you read your Bible right and if you give just the right amount and you, and you go to church just right, if you do right and are careful to follow all that God has commanded in his covenant, then everything that you do will prosper. There's some who believe that, that you have the good life and a good job and good health, good kids, good marriage, good home, and maybe even a good church. All these blessings isn't the Christian life. Satan's saying, yeah, that's the Christian life because anything short of that, no one would want. And so Satan's given permission to test Job. I don't know if you've got, I'm assuming if you've lived any amount of time, you've gotten that phone call, right? Or that email. Or you had that person show up at your door or you've been in the middle of a dialogue and finally someone's confessed or shared something and the whole world falls apart your results from a particular test, or you hear about something going on with your son, your daughter, your spouse, maybe someone you respected and held in high honor, and everything shatters, it seems. Have you had that phone call? Have you received that email? Maybe recently? Job certainly has. He can appreciate the reality of it. 
he got that phone call. Well, he got more than one phone call. Chapter 1, verse 13, it says, Now there was a day when, the son, when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, which is not why the house fell on him, by the way. And there came a messenger from Job, and he said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Bad news came. What do you do when bad news has come to you? I have some bad news things have happened in my life, some phone calls that have been devastating. And usually it involves weeping, right? Crying out to God. But, but pretty quick, I move towards mobilizing, right? I mobilize myself. I mobilize what can be, what resources I have. Something inside of me says, I, I, I'm going I'm to find God in the middle of this. I want to I trust him in the middle of this, and somehow he's going to work this out. And so I want to know him better. What, what I can't quite imagine is in the midst of having one of those types of phone calls to have gotten another one, and not just one, but three other ones like Job does. Verse 16, while the first servant had, was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell them. The second phone call is devastating. Job, you are a lot less wealthy today than you were yesterday. A lot of the blessing has gone away. Your mobilizing might not be enough. But then the third, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck them down as your servants by the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you, Job, you actually have lost all your wealth. It's all gone. Everything's gone. Oh, and your staff, your employees, yeah, they're gone too. But there's more. Verse 18, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Some of you have lost children, parents, some of you lost husbands or wives prematurely. You, you know what that feels like, of the ground opening up underneath you and having no sense of what normal looks like and will it ever be again. What does Job do? Also your children, Job. What does he do with this bad news? Well, Job... It's pretty amazing. Verse 20 says, then Job arose and tore his robes, which is just, this is how terrible it is. I'm undone. It's with the tearing of the robes. I'm undone and, and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and worshiped. Worshiped. He didn't fall on the ground with a clenched fist. He didn't have a demanding spirit. He fell on the ground and said, you take away all these blessings, I still want you. I still want you, Lord. 
I'm no fool. Even though the blessings of God are gone, the presence of the Lord is worth everything to me. And he declared, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And once again, this is where the book of Job should end. Like, what an example. But it doesn't end there. The conversation continues between God and Satan again. And I know you're thinking, I'm, I'm hoping right now that God's not having conversations with Satan about me. You're right to think that. Verse one of chapter two, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them and presented himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And if Job had any idea this was going on, I'm sure he would have been like, can we please talk about Bill for a minute? The Lord says, there is none like him on the earth, blameless and upright. He fears God and turns away from evil. The very same thing he said in chapter one is still true in chapter two after all that, but more. He says, he still holds fast his integrity. Although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. What? Did you hear that? Without reason. Now, if you're like me, you're an incurable explainer, right? So this terrible thing went wrong. Why? Now, why do we ask why? Do you know why you ask why when stuff goes wrong? Because if you could figure out what, you know why, right? Because if you could figure out the why, well, then you could control it and keep it from happening again. You could seize back the sense of well, less mystery and way more, I've got this. I want to learn from my mistakes. Why, Lord? So why we think, okay, so I didn't read the Bible this morning and, and so I got a D on my test. If I read my Bible, maybe I can nail my test. Right, or, you know, I didn't give anything at Christmas time uh, and, and I lost two sales opportunities. And so maybe if I, next time I'll give something and, and maybe I'll get those sales, right? Why, why is this thing happen? Why, why? Surely there's some kind of cause and effect. No, it says without reason. And we're supposed to just sit with that. And Satan so says, yeah, but Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to, his, to your face. Satan's saying, Job still has enough good things to trust you. He still has just enough to be able to trust you. Yes, 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 he's lost his wealth, his property. Yes, yes, he's even lost his family, his sense of future and hope. But God, he still has his health. And as we all know, if you have your health, well, you have everything, right? And the Lord said to Satan, okay, 
Behold, he is in your hands. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord whew, and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery. This is how bad it got with which he to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. How many times in your life have you, have you just looked at God and been like, enough already, enough. This is, this is too much. Pick on somebody else. Is it time for a break? I've said that not that long ago. Somebody else's turn. Leave me alone. Even his wife says it to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Joe, this makes no sense. Everything has gone wrong. Just call it already. And, and I, she, gets a, she gets a rough, you know, rap. Like, have you been around someone who's really suffering? I, I know that we've been in situations where you're by the bedside of people that are in a really rough time physically, and you're like, Lord, I think we've kind of exhausted this. Would you take them home? To, to experience and watch the pain and suffering that they're going through. Like, I just, we want to end and his wife in, in an unwise but loving way is saying, you, do you just want to go ahead and commit like the capital crime and let God take you out and bring an end to this suffering? Job says, you speak as, verse 10, you speak of, you speak as one of the foolish women, women would speak which probably meant they had a conversation after that. And he says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And this is what the narrator says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Can the book end now? Can it be now? I mean, seriously, I don't think we need anybody else in Hebrews chapter 11. Like we could just be like Job. But it doesn't end here. Why is God so relentless? I love C.S. Lewis' quote, paraphrasing here. He says, God, could you love me a little less? You're working so hard to get me more mature. I am not that dissatisfied with my level of maturity. <laughs> Leave me alone. I'm good. I'm good. If this is what it means for you to pursue me, I'm, I'm good. Here's Job, he's hurting, he's in anguish, emotional, physical, relational anguish, and he's not sinning. It's, it's remarkable, it's remarkable. Like, this is the best dude. Like, like he's way better than Ted Lasso. I mean, just way better. And Ted Lasso's awesome. He's way better than Ted Lasso. If you know Ted Lasso, you should find out. It's remarkable. And then Job's three friends show up. And um, this is what it says. It says, when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. Wow. And they raised their voices and wept and they tore their robes and they sprinkled dust on their head towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his suffering was very great. They were silent in the presence of suffering. Sometimes what you need to offer people in their suffering is your presence, not your wisdom. Always lead with presence, 
not wisdom. And that's what they do. They offer their presence, and their presence must have done something to kind of revive Joel's, Job's spirit a little bit because at the beginning of chapter 3, it says, after this, Job opened his mouth. And what does he do? He curses the day of his birth. This is Job saying, this is terrible. This is really, really hard. I honestly just wish I had never been born. It's this bad. He's just expressing the deep sorrow and pain that's inside after seven days of silence and maybe more. And then his friends make their first mistake. They open their mouths. In chapter 5 and following, we have these counselors who didn't see that, that God was doing something mysterious, that God was up to something they didn't understand. They couldn't see behind the veil of the heavenlies, that something is afoot. God and Satan are working out something in Job's soul. They didn't know. Our God is essentially saying, declaring, I am worth knowing. God's not proving anything to Satan. He doesn't owe Satan anything. God's saying, I'm going to apply my severe mercy to Job, and I am going to move him to the point where he is going to want me as first thing with no second things left. That is some intense sanctification. That's what it means for God to reach the heart. His friends didn't understand this at all. They have the best wisdom of the age of the time and the philosophy of the time and actually the philosophy of this time. And it's not good. Eliphaz begins, he says in chapter 5, verse 8, he says, as for me, which by the way, anytime you say, if I were you, which is basically what you say, if I were you, if I was in your shoes, this is how I would handle it. Don't say that. You're never in someone else's shoes. You don't actually know. Don't do that. You're not, you're not if I was in your shoes, this is how I would handle it. But he does it anyway. I told you, so just stayed quiet. And listen to the invitation to the old way of thinking, the broken way of maneuvering God to put your second things first that he gives Job. Verse 8, he says, as for me, I would seek God and God and to God, I would commit my cause, literally my case. Like, like a legal case, I'd lay my case before the judge and justice could be done. I don't want mercy, I want justice. That's what you should do, put your justice. Get, pursue your justice. I have, I have a cause to make, a case to present, to appear before God. So that I can know God more? No, no, so that I can bring an end to this pain. Because the first thing is to be healed from my pain, right? To be healed from the difficulty of my marriage. That's, that's the most important. If, I, if that was then, then that would be the abundant life. If I was healed from the struggles or the temptations that seem to always be buffeting my soul. That is what I want. That's the abundant life. And God says, no. The abundant life is knowing me. 
This is eternal life, John says, that you know God and his son, Jesus Christ. That's the abundant life. All other things get thrown in afterwards, but if you have those out of order, yeah, yeah, to know God, but what I really want. Job's second friend kind of pushes the wisdom of the age a little further in verse, in chapter eight, verse seven. He says, if you will seek God and, and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And, and though your beginning was small, your later days will be very great. Job, you don't need to be drastic and like looking even to death as your only hope. No, no, the world is designed to be your satisfaction. You can put your hope there. You can find some happiness in that. I know that what Jesus is going to say in a few thousand years about first and, and uh, no, that's not, they're wrong. This world is designed for your happiness. And to tell you how to get to these second things, happiness, you got to work with God. You got to work God. You got to present your case. You got to, maybe you did something wrong. They keep saying, maybe you did something wrong. What did you do wrong? If you, all you have to do is take that, show it to God. You know what's going to happen? Rewards, all is well. It's clear you must have done something wrong because this would never happen to anyone if they hadn't done something wrong. But the Lord said he hasn't done anything wrong. If you're pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself before you. Translation, if you get it right, life will work. If you get it right, life will work. To what degree do you believe that? To what degree are we operating out of it? I mean, we may not say that we believe it, but to what degree do we operate? Is it the system by which we live? If I get it right, it'll work. This is the council of religion. If I get it right, well, my cancer won't come back then, right? If I get it right, then I have enough people praying for me, then my marriage will heal and my kids will turn around or maybe turn out. If I get it right, then maybe I won't be lonely or I won't experience futility. If I get it right, Life is just going to get a lot better. He will restore your rightful habitation, your rightful place. This is the theology of the three friends in a nutshell. You get out of life what you put into it. You get out of life what you put into it. Put bad stuff into it, you're going to get some bad stuff out. Unless you repent and then turn, then maybe God will have mercy on you and give you something good. But that's the transactional reality of what his friends offer. Get out of life what you put into it, that and no more. And they sing this tune over and over. Calvin says, they have, these three friends have one song and they sing it to death, he says. And Job answers in chapter 9. At verse 2, he says, truly, I know that this is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wishes to contend with God, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? Job's saying, if I did have audience before God, I, I couldn't even speak one out of a thousand words. It'd be futility. It's a good attitude. It's a fitting and right attitude. 
But around, jo around chapter 9, Job's attitude begins to change. Not all bad, just a little schizophrenic, a little up and down. There's a shift. Change in attitude like our attitude changes. And what changes our attitude? This is really, really helpful for me to understand. What changes my attitude about pain is not that I had pain. It's not, it's not the moment of suffering. It's ongoing suffering. That'll change our attitude. It's continuing pain. Prolonged pain. What changes our heart is not when you're hurt. Because when you're hurt, you probably do what most of us do, you do what I do, and you give God a little timetable, right? Something terrible's happened and you're like, okay, God, this has gone wrong. And eventually this trial is going to pass. That's what's supposed to happen in trials, right? They're supposed to pass. And so consciously or unconsciously, I start a timer on my pain, on my suffering. And I'm starting that timer on it, and I'm really starting that timer on God. It's through, right? You never get around pain, you gotta go through. It's like, yeah, that's totally true. For how long? How long? Because see, it's continuing on and on. And Job is pleading his case in front of his friends and it's perpetual, it's not changing. We welcome trials knowing that they will soon go. But that's not what James 1 says. That's not what God says in James 1. He says, we welcome trials because there's something that's going to happen in them is going to make us different people on the other side that wouldn't have happened in any other way. That's what James says. And somehow afterwards, you're going to look back and you're going to be glad for it, which feels like nonsense in the middle. It's going to feel terrible all the way through. That's the reality of it. And so pain continues for Job. And Job is like really authentic. He talks about his pain very honestly. And, and I honestly, we could take some notes from that about how he just ex like expresses the reality of the depths of his pain before the Lord. He says, I loathe my life in chapter 10, verse 1. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul, verse 2. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Do you see the beginning of the shift? Hey, Lord gives, Lord takes, gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Over time, Joel was like, yeah, but why? Seriously, though, God, why? What are the charges against me? What did I do wrong that resulted in this? I remember as a parent, like crying out to God, going like, okay, hold on. If I, I feel so out of control, especially teenagers, right? I feel so out of control. If, if I do this, Lord, will it result in this? Like I'm negotiating with God. I've got, I've got to bring an end to this. I'm so undone. I'm so afraid. So sad. If I do this, when will this happen? I... I, I don't know about you, I love linear living. I love believing that action A is going to produce result B. I, I love that. I hate mystery. People are like, I love mystery. I'm like, no, you don't. 
Not really. Not when it comes down to the painful things of life. We like mystery like, like a mystery novel, like what's going to happen on the next episode. That's where we like mystery. Not in our own lives. No, no, no. Hate mystery. Why? Because mystery puts me out of control of the reality of my life. It requires me to trust God and I don't always know for sure that he's going to be good to me in the ways that I think goodness should play itself out. And so, I don't want mystery, I want linear. You can hear Job's heart and attitude shift. Chapter 13 says, but I would speak to the Almighty and I desired to argue my case with him. You know, I'm not sure what happened to, hey, listen, if I stood in front of God, I couldn't even speak a word out of 10,000. Now he's like, actually, I've got a folder. Actually, I have files now. I have a conversation that can be had with God. I would like an audience with him. Even the most famous verse in the book of Job, which is quoted oftentimes, Job chapter 13, verse 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Uh, you've probably heard that preached, right? Like that's the attitude to have. That's the perspective to have. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. The second half of that verse maybe betrays some of the meaning or implication in it. What does he say? Rarely quoted, second half of the same verse, yet I will argue, literally defend my ways to his face. I'm not wrong, Job is saying. And if it means I must be slain and God needs to prove it in my death that I am not wrong, I will go to the pit not being wrong. That's what he's saying. This pain, Job gets, Job gets a little, un, he starts leaking, right? I don't deserve these bad things. And if I had a chance, if I had just an opportunity to stand before God and be like, listen, look at my life. Here's my record, which by the way is what he does in the, in the book of Job. Here's my record. I've done this and this and this. I didn't do this and this and this. And God would suddenly come to realize and he would repent. He'd be like, I, I, oh, you know what? I'm sorry. I really screwed you. How, you don't deserve this. I was wrong, Job. That's what Job's at. If he could just hear me out, God would repent. He would change his mind. Verse 18 supports this. He says, behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. That's what prolonged ongoing pain, the, the kind of pain where, you know, like you're married and you're like, oh, cool, this, this, this husband or this wife is not exactly what I thought they were going to be, but, you know, we'll figure it out. And then seven years in, you're like, so this is not changing. Like, it looks like this is actually who I married. <laughs> and everyone who's been married 25 years goes, yeah, no, no, that's actually the case. Um, there's opportunities for change, of course, but, but it's prolonged, right? It's not the, like the first time, it's the 2,500th time. I know that I shall be right. Where did he get this idea? Of course, he got it from the wisdom of the age, and he got it from his friends. Which means be very careful what you tell people in their pain. Because when we're in pain, more than anything, we want relief. Have you ever had a kidney stone? Have you ever had a kidney stone? Any of you guys any kidney stones in here? I know some people have. If you've ever had a kidney stone, you know that you don't want someone reading a Bible verse over you. You want a doctor with a needle. That's what you want. I was 16, high school, in the hallway, kidney stone hit. And when you're 16, you know, you want to be cool in high school. And I, like, I, I mean, I'm dropped to the ground, just rolling around, moaning. 
Like that's what a kidney stone does to you. Unexpected, here is pain, and it is like searing. And I just remember finally getting to the ER and, and getting the, the shot, the, the cocktail of, of happy juice that, that rescued me from this horrific pain. And it knocked me out. I just remember like kind of slumping over on a wheelchair. And it, it's terrible. I, all I wanted was relief. It's all I wanted. I could think of nothing else. I heard one per person talk about that they had a kidney stone. It was really painful. And they got to the ER. And the doctor actually met him as he's coming in, and the doctor said, we have more medicine than you have pain. And he said, I could have kissed him. That's, that's, how, that's, that's what it's like when you have a kidney stone. Why can't God be like that? Why can't God be like that? I mean, he's the great physician. I have pain. Why won't he relieve? Why will he insist on allowing me to remain in pain and suffering at times? What is he doing? I don't understand. Why do you let the pain continue? Wanting something to surface? You're wanting to make me more? I think I'd prefer to just remain a more superficial Christian. That's what it means. I have a case, Job says, and I deserve relief. That's some of what the book of Job is asking you this morning. It's asking me this morning. Do I want relief for my pain more than I want holiness, more than I want to know God, more than I want to become like Jesus. Do I want relief from pain above all? Because God does not promise relief from pain, not in this life. He does promise. There, is, there are like in, immovable, total promises about all things being made new, and praise God for that. But there is no promise here. So do you want relief or do you want him? That's one of the fundamental questions of the book of Job is asking. And God, in his kindness, gives Job the audience he asked for. Though the conversation didn't go exactly like I think Job thought it would go. In chapter 38, it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind, literally out of a storm, and he said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now, come on. Do you, did you guys were here when I was reading about what happened to Job? The blameless guy? Like he's had a rough go, weeks, months, who knows, longer? Sounds harsh. Like, Lord, like, seriously, how about, how about like, how about a little comfort? Come to me, weary, heavy, late, I'll give you rest. That's not what God does here. Who is it that's darkening counsel with words without knowledge? He doesn't give him comfort or rest. He says, dress, verse 3, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. You're going to answer to me. If you want to appear in my courtroom, if you want to be a judge in my courthouse, then you're going to have to be able to pass the exam to be able to make your case, to be able to be that prosecutor and judge. Question number one, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And tell me if you have understanding. There's no answer from Job. He was probably like, question two, please. 
Well, who, who determined its measurements then? Surely you know. This is, you know, divine sarcasm. Or who stretched the line upon it? I, I don't know what Job felt like as God's asking him these first few questions. But this is what we know. There is no opportunity for brokenness unless God meets you in this way. Not really. No real opportunity for brokenness unless you meet God in this kind of moment and God meets you in this way. A number of times where I've been like, God, I feel like I'm making progress. I feel like I love you more than I did. I feel like I'm more surrendered to you than I used to be like a way more of a mess. And, and so why do all the pain? Can you explain yourself to me? And God says something to me like he would say to Job, verse 12. Matt, have you commanded the morning since the, your days began and caused the, the dawn to know its place? These are hard questions. These are like more than PhD level. They're answered with silence. God says in verse 19, where is the way to the dwelling of light and where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory, that you may discern the path to its home and listen to the God's divine sarcasm. He's, he's challenging, pressing in on Job, verse 21. You know, of course, right? For you were born then when light was being taken to its place and the number of your days are great. Job, how old are you? Job, how old am I? What's God doing? What is God doing here? He's delivering Job from his self-obsession and control. He's showing him the absurdity of his claim. He's undoing him. God will ask 77 questions of Job. 77 questions. All of which cannot be answered. Like this powerful, humbling, battering ram at Job's hidden, demanding spirit. But here's the thing. When God speaks to us, and if, when God speaks to the God-fearing heart, like this, what happens in us is we say, I'm, I was wrong. I, I was wrong. I, I'm ashamed of what I even thought about you and about myself. Taking your place, God, which is precisely what Job says in chapter 42. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask me, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I was a fool. And then Job concludes, I had heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore... I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The result of an encounter with God like this leads to one thing, and that's repentance and brokenness. Even for Job, and especially for Job. Do you see, Job is the most blameless person that maybe ever walked the face of the earth outside of Jesus. And that's the reality of where Job had to come to. Loved ones, this is the reality we all must come to. God's invitation is always towards a brokenness that says, you are God and I am not. And we lose that most in our pain and in our suffering. 
pain are you in the midst of? What suffering, what brokenness has like poured itself over the bounds of your life? In that, God is looking at you and he's inviting you. He's saying to you the very central message of the book of Job, that I remain all powerful and all good even in the darkest of night. So trust me, you don't know enough not to. Trust me. You don't know enough not to trust me. And in that, you will experience both brokenness and freedom, and you will be remade into someone more, which is exactly what we saw in Job. And the way in which we're invited to do that on a regular basis is by looking to the one who actually had a claim in the court to say, I'm innocent and was declared guilty for our sake. Like if you're in the darkest of dark right now and you're like, where is God? Which is the question we oftentimes ask, right? The invitation, the gift we have that Job did not have was that we have a nail-scarred Savior. We have an empty cross. We have an empty tomb. We have, a, we have one who, though he was actually innocent, was declared guilty for our sake. That, that, that's how we know that he is in it with us. God is with us in our pain and with us in our sorrow. And you know that because he came for you. And so in the midst of what you've got going on, in the midst of what the people that you love have that is like tearing their life apart or undoing their souls, like the Lord is at work. He always is. And Jesus is the proof of that, his death and his resurrection, which is what we celebrate when we take, the, take communion. We take the body and the blood. We remember. We come, we repent, right? We come, we say like, I'm not God and you are. And, and this was craziness that you would come and die. No one called that one. This was a mystery. We didn't understand that, but yet you did it for me. You did it for us. So that's the gift we have. That's the remembrance we get to do with the communion, the body, the blood of Christ for you. So let me pray, and then you're going to take the communion together. Father, we have nowhere to go. We don't want to darken counsel without knowledge. Instead, we say we come with open hands, honestly pouring out the reality of our sorrow and pain with you, which you say, come and tell me all about it. But we do so trusting you, believing you, knowing that you have our good, even though we don't understand you. We just saying it, even when I don't see you, you're working. Like we don't understand, but we know that you do. And it only matters that you do. So Lord, we want more of you. Would you, by your grace, give us more of you in our sorrow and in our joy, in the heavy, broken times and in the times of delight and lightness, Lord. We look for the day where all tears will be wiped clean and all joy will be restored. Until that day, Lord, we look to you to know you more, to love you more, to be our first thing above all things. To the praise and glory of your name. Christ, amen. If you belong to Jesus,